then we'll read verse 17 through 21 a little bit later. Starting uh, with verse 11, Galatians chapter 2. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, Paul speaking here, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite hypocrite with him. So that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Now, Barnabas was co-pastor at that time with Paul, and Barnabas was Paul's good friend. So Barnabas was carried away in this hypocrisy. Verse 14, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles, and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We, who are Jews by nature, and not sinners of the Gentiles, Verse 16, foundational verse in all Scripture, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh flesh shall be justified. Let's pray one more time. Father, we ask now your Spirit's anointing, Lord, that uh, you would drive out any distractions, Anything from the enemy, Lord, we pray your power on your word, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Haven't we all had those moments in life where we wish we could have a do-over? Maybe even this week. Things we would definitely do differently if we could go back in time. Recorded here is one of those moments for Peter. Now, unlike our lives, or most of our lives, I should say, at least, Peter's blunder, well, it's written in the Scriptures, rather than being forgotten, no, over the last 2,000 years, it's been read now millions of times. But in heaven today with Jesus, you know, Peter's up there, complete harmony, gone from all the things of this world, now he's with Jesus, I doubt Peter minds the centuries of his error being reviewed. Why? Because even in this moment of failure in his life, the Holy Spirit was able to reshine a spotlight on the gospel of grace. And when your, your mistakes and I mis- my mistakes, when they turn out and God uses them for good, we don't have to live in the guilt of them. The grace that Peter needed... The grace that Paul needed, the grace the people in Antioch needed, the grace I need today, the grace you need today, we see that all here. We'll see that in this text. Someone from uh, the country, had to be the country because I don't think city folks talk like this, but someone from the country once said, it doesn't matter how much milk you spill as long as you don't lose the cow. (laughs) And if we don't lose the gospel or replace the gospel, it will always bring us back to grace. It'll always bring us back to forgiveness, and that's only found in Jesus. And if you're taking notes this morning, you'll see the title of our time and the word this morning is In Christ Alone. And the first thing we want to look at this morning is uh, Peter's blunder, and it's You know, you have to be humble when you mention blunders of people in the Bible because, again, theirs is written for all eternity, but we have a lot of blunders. You imagine if someone's writing a book about all of our mistakes? God had to use some men that became very, very humble. You know, Moses was called the most humble man on the face of the earth. His mistakes are listed in the Bible. Not all of them, but some big ones. uh, Peter's has a few of them. (laughs) This isn't his first that's listed. Uh, We see... David's mistakes in the Bible. But here, Peter really is, at this moment of time, he really is a poor example for just this moment of time. Now, this is not the content, this is not the entirety of his life. For the most of his life, he was a very honorable man that God used in a great way. But at some point, let me set this kind of uh, backdrop for you. Uh, at some point, Peter, he was a pastor in Jerusalem. His church was primarily Jewish, could have been almost all Jewish. I'm sure there may have been a Gentile here or there, but for the most part, 
most of the people in the church that Peter pastored were Jewish in Jerusalem. But Peter, at some point, ventured up to Antioch, which is up in Syria. So he goes up to Antioch, on the coastal side of Syria. And he went up to Syria to see for himself, apparently, this is just us knowing as, as this is recorded, it's uh, clear that he went up to Syria more than likely for the same reason that Barnabas had been sent up there, just to see what God was doing among this predominantly Gentile church. So Jerusalem is predominantly a Jewish church, all born again. Antioch is predominantly Gentile, born again as well. So he goes up to visit and see what's going on there uh, in Antioch. Now, Peter is used of the Lord. Remember when Jerusalem, when he preached at Pentecost, uh, over 3,000 people came to know the Lord, right? He was used in a great and mighty way. And he's been, he's been the uh, primary one used there in Jerusalem. Now, them seeing Peter is no doubt an encouragement to the body of Christ up there. Would you agree? You know, Peter coming is no doubt an encouragement to them. And uh, he's no doubt encouragement. Uh, he's no doubt encouragement to them, but they're no doubt <clears throat> one encouragement to him as well. Now, Peter, he was certainly blessed to see what God had been doing in Jerusalem, and no doubt he now seeing what God is doing there in Antioch is just amazed that exactly what Jesus had said would happen in Acts 1-8 is happening. Turn with me to Acts chapter 1, one second. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, this is what Jesus says. He says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And that you and I can receive the power to be witnesses of the Lord in Richmond, in Chesterfield, when we go to Guatemala, when we go to other places, we can be witnesses of the Lord as well. And Peter to see that Jesus was actually doing in Antioch the same thing as he had been doing in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's church was growing. Antioch's church is growing. And he's seeing that the gospel has now moved from Jerusalem to Samaria. Antioch is now more of the uttermost. Now, it's not the uttermost. The gospel has a lot further to go. Has to still get to the British Isles. Has to still get to India. Has to still get to uh, South of Africa. Has to still get to China. But it is moving out, right? The rings of the gospel are expanding. So he goes up there. He sees what God is doing. He is encouraged. They are encouraged. And the fellowship at this point appears to be very sweet for a period of time. As Peter and Paul, who's pastor there, Barnabas, co-pastor there, the other believers, they're breaking bread together. Isn't it nice to have a good meal with someone? I mean, it's, it really, when you sit down with people that you love and you know they love you, and you just have a really good meal, and you're ha- hanging out and just talking about what God is doing. And Peter was doing this, and just like he would have done in Jerusalem, because it says in Acts 2 that they would do the same thing. And there he is doing this in, uh, in Antioch. And it's got to be something that Peter can't believe he's doing, because as a younger Jewish man, he could have never imagined himself eating with Gentiles. They were considered unclean. God had to break him of that in Acts chapter 10 with a man by the name of Cornelius, Uh, Peter was sent by God in a vision to Cornelius, who was a Gentile Roman leader. And Peter was given this vision of all these different animals that were all against the law to eat them. And actually, he said to rise and kill. Three times he said this thing happened, this vision, where the sheet comes down and there's these animals on it like pigs, which were unclean could have been snakes, which they weren't allowed to eat. could have been falcons, which they weren't allowed. Nasty things that none of us would want to eat either. Although some people around the world think these things taste great. Now, there's no law against them now, but under the Jewish law, if you were under the Mosaic law, you couldn't eat these things. And not only that, they believed, they were taught by the rabbis, they couldn't eat with Gentiles either. And Peter was taken to Cornelius' house. He had to eat with Cornelius, and he had to eat some things that he wouldn't really like to do. So he has been broken of that by the Lord. He couldn't have imagined himself now. He's probably sitting there eating with these Gentiles, and they're giving him what they would prepare. And it was probably, many of the times, they were giving him things that aren't kosher. 
They weren't according to the law. But the Holy Spirit had made clear to Peter that the Gentiles were made pure, not by ceremony, but by the blood of Jesus. It wasn't ceremony that made them pure. It was the mercy and the grace of Jesus and his blood. And it was probably not Peter's practice. This is just, uh, this is just my own commentary. I, just looking at it, uh, I don't believe. Again, I could be wrong. But it probably wasn't Peter's practice because he came from a predominantly Jewish church in Jerusalem, it probably wasn't his practice to regularly eat non-kosher food. In other words, in Jerusalem, Peter probably, for the most part, still ate his Jewish diet. Does that make sense? You know the old term, when in Rome, do as the Romans? Probably, in a predominantly Jewish church, it probably was not like that. The food, it was his comfort foods anyway. The things that he grew up eating were the things that he would have enjoyed the most, and he probably felt most comfortable eating the kosher food that he'd eaten his whole life. He said to Jesus when that vision came, he said, not once in my life has unclean food touched my lips. So he had a taste for the kosher food and certainly had a love for it. He probably ate that most often. But apparently when he went to the Gentile world like Antioch, as the Spirit had already shown him with Cornelius, he ate what was placed before him, and he ate it with the Gentiles. But then some men came up from Jerusalem from James, who was a contemporary of Peter. James and Peter both worked together in the Jewish, larger Jewish church, and these men came up from James. They were perhaps in Jerusalem fellowship led by James, or they had just used James' name and kind of did a little name drop. Hey, we're here from James. They certainly had the Jewish accent, or the Jerusalem accent. Uh, They definitely were from Jerusalem. But in any case, they weren't sent by James, even if they came out of James' church. And we know that because in Acts 15, James affirms the simplicity of the gospel. And we know Paul affirms it in verses 1 through 10 that we looked at last week. So we know that James didn't tell him to come up and say, hey, I mean, when you get to Antioch, make sure you get everybody to separate. Gentiles on this side, Jews on this side. Make sure everybody gets the dietary food right. No, James didn't do that. They were using his name, but he, they weren't sent by him. Now, James refutes these men, and he calls that putting the Gentiles in bondage. And this was not the Lord's desire. At any rate, Peter sees these men come up from Jerusalem, and they probably come in acting very friendly. I don't think they came in, you know, uh, in in such a way that people wouldn't at first listen to them. They come in probably acting friendly, talking of very spiritual things. Boy, these guys are these guys are deep spiritual. We need to we need to listen to these guys. But then, when it comes time to eat, dinner time comes they automatically probably separated in their own table area, demonstrating their commitment to not eating with uncircumcised Gentiles, and perhaps, and probably more than perhaps, probably likely, they were also eating kosher food. They'd like they brought their own lunchbox or something, right? From Jerusalem. So they separate, probably eating their own food. Now Peter a man normally strong and bold, on this occasion, has a moment of weakness and decides to join them. He's like, hey, uh, I'm known as the pastor of Jerusalem. And these guys are all from Jerusalem. And if word gets back to Jerusalem that I'm eating with Gentiles, even though he's told them before he's done this, there's something about seeing it versus just hearing about it, right? And he caves, and he decides to join them. Perhaps his own church has never seen him do this, even though he's told them, even though he's testified. It's different when that peer group is there, isn't it? Peer pressure exists. Hey, teenagers and college kids, peer pressure even exists for adults, just so you know. If you ever think you're going to outgrow peer pressure, you won't. There's always another peer group in life. When Peter breaks uh, his prior fellowship with the Gentiles and he goes and joins these men from uh, Jerusalem, 
than all the Christian Jews. It says uh, it's not just him then. It says, verse 13, look what it says. After Peter does this, the bigger the leader, the more people will follow. Peter's the head of not only the Jerusalem church, but in many respects, he's kind of heading up the early church, period. He's the one that kind of gave Paul those 15 days when they talked, even though Paul had been called by Jesus. But Peter, once he does this, verse 16, verse 13, I'm sorry, it says, and the rest of the Jews also played. So all of them, the rest of the Jews played the hypocrite with him. Even Barnabas, his co-pastor, all of them go over there. And all the Gentiles are left standing there like, what do we do? We've been eating with Peter for weeks. What happened? He loved our pork sandwiches. He thought they were delicious. Right? Now all of a sudden it has to be matzo ball soup or whatever it is over there. What, what did they bring over? But last week he was eating barbecue with us. And they're all standing over there and probably a little bit hurt too. There's this sudden separation. Peter's like, you know, I, I could eat with you before, but I can't now. So the mealtime is now Gentiles on this side, Jewish people on the other side. By the way, Satan always wants to divide people groups. He'll divide over race. He'll divide over ethnicity. He'll divide over the dumbest of things. What people wear. High schools are the worst. Kids divide over whose name brand is on the shirt. But Satan will use anything to divide people. And this time, Peter fell for it. And Paul, filled with the Spirit, he can't believe what he's witnessing. Paul's like, Paul's 100% Jewish, Jew of Jew, born on the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. He sees this whole thing going on. He's like, he cannot believe it. Like, what has happened here? We had great harmony in one moment. Implosion. And he witnesses what he sees, and he calls out the hypocrisy. He actually rebukes Peter in front of everybody. Why? He has to do it in front of everybody because everyone's involved. He asks Peter, how in the world can you cross into the Gentile world, which you've been doing, eating their food, which you've been doing for some period of time, how can you cross into the Gentile world, but suddenly they can't come into the Jewish world? It's a good question, isn't it? You've been eating their food, but all of a sudden they get here, and all of a sudden they're not allowed to eat at the Jewish table. But you were allowed to eat at the Gentile table. Who made you more important? Even the Spirit, though, had made everybody one. And when leaders are poor examples, or they make a bad choice, and by the way, all of us will make a bad choice at times. Please... Don't give up on me forever if I ever make a bad decision. It will happen. It has happened. But mom and dad, you've made bad decisions. I hope your kids haven't given up on you. Right? That's why the Bible says love covers a multitude of sins. Because you will mess up eventually as a leader in your home, and you better hope that people will forgive you for it. You will mess up as a business owner. You will mess up as something, school teacher or principal or whatever you may be, a doctor or running a practice. You'll mess up somewhere along the way, and someone better be there to forgive you. Amen? Because we're all going to make mistakes. And Peter makes a big one here. But when leaders make big mistakes, they lead other people astray. And we have to understand that even godly men have moments of weaknesses. These moments of weakness, I should say. A bad day, or just that bad decision. And Paul here, chosen by God, he's a peer in authority. A lot of times God has to use someone who's a peer level. Paul's a peer of Peter, and he's put there by the Spirit for this very moment. He's put there at this moment by the Spirit of God to quickly correct it. By the way, the, the more quickly we correct mistakes, we limit the damage, right? But if we let them fester... As our country lets things fester for year after year after year, they get worse. But if we address these things and we correct them, and this is what Paul does, he, re- he corrects and reaffirms the gospel's truth, the gospel's simplicity, the gospel's purity. This was not Paul and pride trying to discredit Peter. Now, he loved Peter. 
No, this was addressing and healing a wound before it gets worse and before it causes significant damage. J. Oswald Sanders, I love this quote. He said, if you'd rather pick a fight than solve a problem, do not consider leading a church. I read that again. If you'd rather pick a fight than solve a problem, do not consider leading a church. Why? Because as Moses found out, as David found out, as Paul found out, as Peter, people will always get on people's nerves. And leaders bring people together, not divide them. A good and godly leader doesn't look for areas to confront or call out. Not looking for areas to say, aha, I see that speck in your eye. I've been waiting for this moment where I could show that I, Paul, am greater than Peter. Because there was debate sometimes. Who was it Paul? Is it Apollos? Is it Peter? Which one's the greatest? No. They're not looking for things to call out. But on the other hand, a good leader, a godly leader, if the need is real, won't sit on the sideline and do nothing either. Paul takes action. This is actually Paul being a peacemaker. We're called to be peacemakers, restoring peace and harmony. Peter, for his part, guess what Peter seems to demonstrate from this story? Humility. We don't see any pushback from Peter here. We don't see anything. How dare you tell me? Paul, come on. I, I was impossible before you. I'm pulling rank. I run Jerusalem, I'll say whatever, I'll do whatever I please. No. Peter seems to respond with the humility needed to agree that he was wrong and allow Paul to correct the mistake while encouraging the church with truth and sound doctrine. Now, before we look at Paul's reaffirming the gospel, two quick questions for all of us, and we'll move on here. Aren't we glad, number one, Aren't we glad God uses imperfect people and that we are not fired or removed when we fail? Number one, I can never get down on the guys in the Bible that make mistakes because we're all in the same boat. But I'm glad God doesn't remove us from the equation. He restores us regularly. Number two, this this one really hits home with all of us. Remember, Peter just got corrected in front of everyone. I know Christians that can't get corrected by themselves in a quiet place. How do we handle being corrected when we're in the wrong? How do we handle being corrected when we're in the wrong? Will we admit when we're misrepresenting Jesus? Will we admit it? Because if we admit it, we can be restored and move forward. And a lot of other people will be helped in the process. Look, Look at the next This powerful doctrinal statement that Paul makes in verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Now, this passage, and actually all the way through verse 21, some people believe, and different Bible scholars look at this differently, it's minor, Some scholars believe that what you see recorded from verse 16 and 21 is actually the words Paul said directly to the Gentile eating group and the Jewish eating group and Peter, and he gave what it would be a mini-sermon of correction. Some believe that this is not Paul speaking live in Antioch, but it's Paul's recounting what he views as the truth on the matter, and he's writing it to the Galatians. Either way, it's a, it's a minor thing. I'm just kind of letting you know that personally, I believe that I believe he was actually speaking this to everybody. Because in my view, if Paul took the impetus to correct the problem, I believe he would have wanted everyone to understand doctrinally why they could never do this again, separate that way again. So uh, irregardless... Or regardless, that's not a word. Uh, Irregardless isn't a word. Either way, he's looking back, or we're looking back now at uh, what he says here. And we have um, this powerful statement on saving faith. G. G. Campbell Morgan said uh, of this uh, particular verse, he said, Then follows the great fundamental statement of doctrine. The ultimate purpose of law 
was to drive men to Christ. The ultimate purpose of the law is to drive men to Christ. Paul's opening statement is that it is a fact. He says, knowing. It's a fact that we who have been saved, we must know for certain that no person has ever or will ever be justified by keeping the law. Can we all understand that? No one will ever be justified keeping the law. No one ever has been. This is why Jesus told Nicodemus, who was, who was a, a man that was a religious leader and kept the, or tried to keep the law, that he had to be born again, which was a term that no one had ever heard before. And his role as a religious leader and all of his, his attempts to be faithful to the law would come up short of God's perfection. But the perfect life of Jesus and his blood And the fulfilled requirements of God's perfection, Jesus fulfilled all of those things in the law to perfection, not a single sin. And it was his substitutionary perfection there on the cross that Christ then bestows on those that admit they cannot please or appease God with their works or their efforts, but then they repent and ask God, through Christ, for forgiveness. This, this is faith in Christ. It's a saving faith. And in this one verse, Paul says three times that salvation, or another term for salvation is justification, comes only by faith and belief in Jesus Christ. Three times he says it. Look look at the verse again. Uh, He says, knowing that a man is not justified by law, but, here it is, by faith in Jesus Christ, then the next sentence, believed in Christ Jesus, then the next sentence, justified by faith in Christ. Three times in the same sentence, or the same verse, Paul says in consecutive sentences, faith in Christ, believe in Christ, faith in Christ. And then twice in the same verse, he makes it clear that nobody, starting the the first uh, part of the verse, knowing that no man, that a man is not justified by the works of the law, and then the very end of the verse, for the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. So the beginning of the verse and the end of the verse is that no one will ever be justified by the law, but the middle, three times, only justified by faith. A powerful statement. No works of any kind would ever work. The Bible tells us uh, in Isaiah that even our righteousness is filthy rags. It's good to remember, and I'll pray, and I'll be talking to God, and I'll, and I'll say that, Lord, I said, Lord, even the best I can do is filthy rags. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Paul wrote in Romans seven eighteen. I love this verse. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. You know, someone says, I'm a really good man, or I'm a really good woman. No, they're not. <laughs> they're not being honest. Or they're just, they just haven't been taught yet by God. I mean, I know people can really believe that because they've done a lot of good things. But when you see yourself next to a perfect and holy God, you start to realize, really, there's really not that much redeeming value. And we realize that even, even the best of our motives seem to, deep down the core, have something in it for us. This is the essence of social media. It is. I mean, I, I use social media, too, because I want to proclaim you know, things about the Lord, and there's funny stuff. But, but there is an element of we want people to see our best. I don't see anyone on there saying, let me tell you how filthy rotten I am. <laughs> I just don't see it for the most part. It's always the best face forward. And that's, and, and that's understandable, but I'm just saying that God sees all the other 90% of what we do. And who we are. Now, if our righteousness is filthy rags, and there's nothing good that dwell in us, do we have any hope? Well, Paul writes in the 8th chapter of Romans, verse 1, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul said, hey, in spite of the fact that nothing good in me dwells, 
there's no condemnation for me because God looks at me and he doesn't see Paul the sinner. He sees Jesus' righteousness. And that's the way God sees you if you're born again. Saving faith is faith in Jesus. It's his faith. It's faith in him. And it comes not only from Jesus, but he gives us his spirit to dwell in us. Ravenhill, Leonard Ravenhill, he great pastor in the uh, mid-1900s all the way through maybe the 70s or so. Ravenhill said this. He said, I don't ask people if they're saved anymore. I look them straight in the eye and say, does Christ live in you? That's a better question. Because a lot of people say, I'm saved, we're going to church. No, 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 does Christ live in you? And that's a question that's a lot harder to answer uh, for a lot of people that if they've never really kneeled at the cross. Now, let's move on. Verse 17. He says, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are found sinners, is, not, uh, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For, though the, uh, for through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. By the way, Paul was a scholar that spoke multiple languages. He had been raised from the time he was a child at the feet of Gamaliel. He probably knew vast portions of the, of the Torah by heart. He could speak vast chapters. He was incredibly intelligent, had, had the IQ of like a C.S. Lewis or a William Shakespeare. Peter was a fisherman that, you know, got saved using four-letter words. Not a big vocabulary. Peter became a mighty man of God filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, but Paul was a scholar. And Peter would later write, he said, the things Paul writes are hard to understand. (laughs) Peter wrote that. So if you're reading some of Paul's stuff and you're like, is there a lexicon nearby? Is there, is there a secondary source of this information? That's the way Peter sometimes would read Paul's letters. He's like, this guy is too smart for me too. You know, that kind of thing. What he's saying here, he's saying that the fundamental difference between Christianity and all the man-made religions uh, understand that Christianity came from God. And unlike all the other religions of the world, God sent his son down from heaven to meet us, to forgive us, to cure us, and to heal us. Because men and women can't cure and forgive themselves. All the other religions are based on making oneself fit for God, or some God, or some vision and view of the afterlife. That's all the religion of the world is some way to make themselves presentable to their God, whether it be Allah, right, or some Hindu God, or some uh, tribal God, or whatever it may be, or make them fit for the afterlife. Now, for Jewish people, because Paul's writing this from a Jewish context, for Jewish people, they had the right God, but the wrong approach, right? They did have the right, they had Yahweh. They had the right God, but the wrong approach to God. And Jesus said, humble yourself in repentance, and I'll forgive and cleanse you. That was the approach to God. Not, I've kept, remember the rich young ruler? Jesus said, hey, have you kept all the, I've, I've kept all the commandments since I was a kid. Knock that out. He said, let's see how much you love coveting. Sell everything you have. Give it all the poor. Oh, you struggle with the 10th commandment after all, don't you? Which is, goes back to the first commandment. You really don't love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength because I just told you what to do and you don't want to do it. Right God, wrong approach. Most of the religions have the wrong God and wrong approach. Judaism has the right God but the wrong approach to God. But those raised in Jewish communities, they were taught erroneously Moses wouldn't have taught them these things. They were taught erroneously. Moses would have taught them they had to be circumcised. Don't get me wrong. That was under the Mosaic law. But they were taught erroneously that things like circumcision, like their relation to Abraham, like going to the temple, and what they ate didn't just satisfy the Mosaic law. It justified them before God. And Moses would have told them, no, 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 no. 
You do have to keep the law, but it will never justify you. They were taught erroneously by the rabbis of their day, and still today this is taught. Now, Jesus had said regarding food. Now, Jesus, in his earthly ministry, Matthew, uh, I'm sorry, Mark, it is Matthew. What happened to you glance? Matthew 15, 11. He says a similar thing in Mark, too, but different verse. But in Matthew 15, 11, he says it this way. He says, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of a mouth defiles a man. So Jesus already is refuting Jewish dietary holiness in his earthly ministry. He was already saying, you guys can eat all the things that Moses said to eat and not eat all the things that Moses said not to eat, and you still are defiled. So he had already taught them that. This isn't new to Paul. This isn't new to Peter. Or through them in their ministry, Jesus has already said this, if people were listening. The ceremonial foods can neither make you clean nor do they defile you. This is why Jesus told Peter in Acts to rise and kill and eat the things that he said he would not even touch because he knew they were unclean under the Mosaic law. He could not, but Jesus said, basically, Peter, you'll never be able to evangelize the Gentile world being a separatist. You'll never be able to reach them. So did Christ tell the apostles to sin? Understand, this is what Paul's asking. He says, is Christ a minister of sin? If he, he says, if we're seeking to be justified in Christ, but, in verse 18, if we rebuild the things which were destroyed with the cross, if we go back and rebuild Mosaic law, rebuild it back up again, did Christ tell us to sin when he said that the things that you eat can't defile you? Is Christ ministering and saying, hey, go ahead and eat these other things? And going against his own law? No. The old covenant had a time and purpose. The new covenant has a time and purpose. Both are important, but the new covenant fills up the gaps the old covenant could never accomplish. What Peter and Paul have come to know is they're not sinning by eating non-kosher foods. The new covenant reveals that true purity comes from Christ who purifies the heart, not from foods. The heart, of course, is far more important than food. The Old Testament laws, understand, they were pictures of purity. I love the Old Testament. I love when we, God has written the law in our heart. The Old Testament laws, they were a picture of purity. They were a reminder. Understand this about the Old Testament law. They were a reminder that God desires a set-apart people. That's true and that he desires us to look different from the world, that's true. But those things couldn't save us. And under Jesus, the way we look different is not because, I'm sorry, I don't eat pork. Mm -mm. Nope, not touching this mouth. No, it would be they see the life of Christ coming out of us. That's the way we would look different. Now understand, too, there's, I have mess, you guys in September, you're going to meet Sam Nadler. He's going to be here. He's a messianic Jewish pastor, evangelist all over the world. He's a mentor of mine. I love the man. Sam does not eat shellfish. He does not eat certain things because he doesn't want to offend when he's in Jewish communities. He thinks it puts up an unnecessary wall where he can bring the gospel. Many messianic Jewish pastors and leaders uh, have similar convictions, and I think it's great. I don't have any problem with it whatsoever, and neither should you. Many Jewish people that are Christians, that are born again, uh, many even Gentiles, they want to follow certain dietary aspects of the law because of an appreciation for it. That's fine. Or for health reasons, that's great. Or for cultural reasons, that's fine too. Or perhaps as a means of connecting to unsaved Jewish people. All those are valid and legitimate reasons, and all are completely acceptable within the liberty we have in Christ. But a return to the ceremonial aspects as a means of salvation, Paul says right here, is a dead end. So the reason is what matters, right? If you say, man, I, I, I'm sorry, we don't eat pork. It's just our conviction. But I'll have a hamburger while you eat pork, and I'll eat with you. That's fine. If you're like, hey, I'm, I'm a born-again Jew. I can't eat with you because you're eating that unclean stuff. That's what was happening here. Now, for the most part, that doesn't happen today, but there's new attitudes that do develop today that we do have 
where some people, I've heard people complain about messianic fellowship. Why do they even need a messianic fellowship? Why can't we all just be, well, who made you the ruler of how God works? God's using messianic fellowships to reach people all over the world that I can't reach that Calvary Chapel doesn't reach. And vice versa, God uses us to reach people that the messianic fellowships aren't reaching. But we do fellowship together in the broader context of the body of Christ. That makes sense? So we have new ways to divide. It may not be over food, but it's over superior attitudes, or I think I understand this better than you do. We need to be careful of that. The last thing we look at, come to a close here, is a living faith. If you're taking notes. We looked at a saving faith. We'll close with this living faith. Verses 20 and 21. How many times have you read verse 20? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. What a passage. I read an article this week. I shared it with the men on Thursday night, our bottom row in men's study. I read this article that millennials take an average of six selfies a day. I'm not here to pick on millennials. We love millennials too. But self-obsession isn't new, but there's definitely new ways to express it in the modern age, isn't there? Self-obsession isn't new. The Greeks were self-obsessed. The Romans were self-obsessed. But there's definitely new ways uh, to express it in our lifetime. But the cross, oh, the cross. The cross takes our eyes off ourselves and puts them on Jesus. That's what the cross does. Someone once said, and the author is unknown, the cross is I crossed out. The cross is an I crossed out. The less we look at ourselves and love ourselves, instead look and love Jesus will be transformed. This is the transformative verse Paul is talking about here. When we come to Jesus, he completely changes the focus of our life. Everything comes into focus. We actually find out why we were created in the first place. We were created to worship and serve God. But we live to worship and serve ourselves. And we'll do it through false religion. We'll do it through empty works. We'll do it through entertainment. We'll do it through, you name it. I mean, mankind comes up with a million reasons and how to do it. I really do, and, I'm, and I mean this. I enjoy watching Olympics, but I really feel sad for the unsaved Olympians. Any of you that ever played sports, you know what a little glory feels like. At some level, I experienced it playing high school basketball. My level was different, but the feeling's still the same. When you hold that gold medal and you're like, I really mean something today. The world looks at me like I've accomplished something. Now, God's not impressed. I, I promise you. <laughs> the widow that put the little mite in had never won a gold medal, but Jesus said, this woman. That's the woman, that he, that heart of humility. Matter of fact, the more pride you are, the, the less. But I, but I do, I really feel sorry for Olympians that they, they will live their whole life trying to recapture that moment in many ways. And many of them will end up in bad relationships. They'll end up thing after thing trying to recapture that glory. It's why athletes go well past their prime sometimes. And it's sad. It's like watching a train wreck. Because they can't give those things up. But God changes the focus of our life. And to live becomes Christ. For me to live as Christ, he says, in another passage. But Paul's statement here is quite simply a powerful representation of a new life in Jesus. And these words, they really should be the anthem of every born-again believer. These words, they speak of sufficiency, the strength of God, the security of our blood-bought salvation. All of that is in this verse. It should give us confidence encouragement, not pride, but confidence and hope. But you can't just know these words. We have to live these words. And we can't live them unless we first know them. And unless we not only know them, we have to add believe them, right? Believe these words. Look at verse 20 really close. Let's read it one more time. And let's look at what it says. For I have been crucified with Christ. 
We're going to come back to what that means in just a second. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What, a, what if we could all say that? There's days where I don't feel this at all, by the way. How about you? There's days where I feel like, is Christ in here anywhere? Because I just don't feel spiritual. Christ who lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh. We're still in the flesh. I know because this body's dying. How about yours? Ankle pain that I used to not have, this, that, and the other. That's the flesh. I live by what? Faith. Faith. It's simply believing what God has said. And he, look what he caps it off with. Who loved me and gave himself for me. See, this is where God says, I know you're not feeling that you're doing a great job. Big arms around you. When we died with Christ, he is now our life. He's the only reason we go forward. I would not be preaching today if it wasn't for Christ in me. I guarantee I'd be doing something different. I could make more money. I could do other things. I could have less of the burdens of certain things. I go forward because Christ is in me. You should be able to say the same thing. You go forward because Christ is in you. He's now on the throne of our hearts. and that's At least he should be. We now live by faith. We truly believe in what he said and what he's done. I know he came, I know he died, and I know he rose from the dead. How about you? I know it. And he loves us, and he proved it. Other people will say that they love you, and they will constantly prove they don't. But Jesus proved it once and for all that he does love us. Let me come to a close here by telling a little story by J. Vernon McGee. He was a pastor. Sometimes you might have heard J. Vernon McGee on the radio, the Bible bus. He preached in Los Angeles, uh, a church in Los Angeles. In the, um, he died in 1988, but he had a church there for years. And a young man came up to him after a service, and it was specifically about this passage in Galatians. And the term was popular at that time, the crucified life. And the young man came up to him after the service there in Los Angeles and says, Dr. McGee, do you live a crucified life? And he quite surprised the young man. He said, no, I don't. And he says, do you? And he says, well, I'm trying to. And he said, no, no, that's not the question you asked me. You asked, do I live a crucified life? I told you no. You said I'm trying to. What's your answer? And he said again, well, I'm trying to. He said, no, no, no. The point is, you can't live a crucified life. He said, let me explain to you, young man. He said, there's a lot of ways you can take your life. And suicide. He said, you could hang yourself, you could jump off a building, you could poison yourself. He goes, but you could not crucify yourself. He said, you will only have one hand, and as soon as you nail one, you have no way to nail the other. He said, Paul said he was crucified with Christ. In other words, when you kneeled at the foot of the cross and received grace, God baptized you into the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That makes sense. You cannot crucify yourself, but you can kneel at the foot of the cross, and God says, but my son did do that work. That's the point, that Jesus has done that work for us, that he's given his life, and we're given. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. I received his salvation. This is substitutionary what he's talking about. No one can do this but Jesus. Nobody could achieve salvation but Christ. And the point is this. It's not that we're trying to earn God's favor. This is the whole crux to what Paul is saying here. Don't try and earn God's favor. Simply thank him for grace. Thank him for all he's done. And guess what he'll then do? He'll start changing your desires. Instead of you trying to please God, he'll change your desire and say, I will love broccoli, I will love broccoli, I will love broccoli. As a kid, all of a sudden, you'll start liking broccoli. I'm saying in spiritual terms. Make sense? You start thanking and praising God. Fanny Crosby said, this is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. The more she would do that, the more she automatically started to love the things of God. Because why? Because if Christ lives in you, he activates this. 
So the more we thank him, the more we praise him, the more we thank him, he'll change your desires. This Wednesday night when we do the outreach, you couldn't do an easier outreach. You say, well, I don't normally like even care about this. The more you start thanking God, you'll start wanting to do the things God does. Jesus went from town to town telling people about who he was. Well, that was for Jesus to do. No, no, he'll give you the same desire. I've, I haven't said it in a long time, but when I was in the business world, I'd come to, church, I'd come to work on Monday. My coworkers, because they knew I was a pastor and working in the business world, they would say, how many people did you send to hell this weekend? <laughs> We'd play this game. I'd say, I can't send them to hell. I can only tell them not to go there. <laughs> I get to go to church. They felt like they had to go to church, which is why they preferred to golf on Sunday, because church was a drag to them. The more the Holy Spirit works in you, the more you want to do the thing. I'm not, I'm not doing an outreach this Wednesday night so I can please God. We could do the greatest outreach of all time, and it would not please God. We're doing an outreach because we have been made like God. Amen. Make, see the difference? We're not doing it so we can check out the Bible and say, we did an outreach. We should be good for six months of blessing from that. <laughs> Uh, we should see better tithes and offerings out of that. We should see this out of that. We should see better health out of that. No. We're doing it because he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Now, my flesh would never want to do that stuff. But the Holy Spirit says, but I'm making you into the image. And this is what Paul is saying. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. If Paul was doing Paul's thing, Paul would not have been in Antioch. Paul wanted to go to Spain. Right? But the Holy Spirit then guides our life. He's the one that helps us change our desires. Amen? It's all about grace, folks. His amazing grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again and again and again for your amazing grace. Lord, we know that we could never work for salvation, but we're so thankful for it. And we ask Jesus even now that if we have taken for granted so great a salvation, please forgive us. Lord, work afresh and anew in our life. Fill us afresh and anew with your spirit. Lord, change our desires. Spiritually speaking, Lord, give us the taste for the things that you love. And Lord, consecrate our lives. Lord, we don't want to try and earn your favor. We simply want to bow before you and say thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Lord, we're thankful that we're crucified with Christ, that you did the work, that, Lord, we receive the redemption and justification of your blood. And, Lord, as you reveal your Son in us, Lord, may you continually transform us, and may we feel your loving arms around us, for you loved us and gave yourself for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What a-